What is it that you need to learn most? How to honor the wisdom of my heart. And that um, for me, I'd rather be judged and remembered for the presence of my being than the doing of my mind. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. Welcome to ATP Radio. I'm your host, Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, showing you how to accentuate the positive, the way to a better life. Your radio station is an example of the future existing right now. Hi, how are you going? You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation and psychic medium, accentuating the positive for the next hour here on Soul Traveller Radio. It's my intent to present more empowering and loving messages through our media, more love in the media. So I present inspiring stories from people all over the globe who break down the barriers of prejudice, judgment and hatred and uplift our world with their stories and their messages. You can listen to some of my interviews on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Soul Traveller Radio. Please subscribe and support positive media. You can stay up to date with the show on Accentuate the Positive Radio with Karen Swain on Facebook or go to karenswain.com and you'll see most of the podcasts there. Hello, how are you all today? You're with Karen, accentuating the positive here on Soul Traveller Radio. I have the most delicious Chocosaurus. <laughs> I can't even remember. So I always ask people, how do you want me to introduce you? And Michael said, as the most delicious Chocosaurus Rex. So I have the most, is that right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, total chocoholic. Let me get serious. So we have with us today the fabulous Michael Margolis, who is the founder of Get Storied, a business that helps, well, anyone really, but he goes into businesses and helps get their story straight. You know, like, why are you in business? What's what's the story, man? Anyway, it's all very delicious and we're going to talk about it today. But first, I'm going to quiz him about his own personal journey. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi, how are you, sweetie? <laughs> Very good. So I met Michael online, oh, I don't know, a year or so ago. Actually, a friend of mine, uh, Mary Vanderveer, told me about Michael, who's another fabulous, look, she has a radio show and she also helps people do personal branding and branding and she's an artist and she's delicious. She said, check out this guy, it's really good. So I looked online and I thought, I like what this guy's saying. I like it, I like it. Anyway, so a year later, he's looking to come to Australia. I'm here in Melbourne. <laughs> he's here in Melbourne when he says it with a very Australian accent. And we connected and he stayed with me and he's been on this amazing journey throughout down under New Zealand and Australia. He's been on a bit of a shaman's journey actually. So Michael, let's start yes. from the beginning. I know you've been interviewed by many people and your stories online, but I'm going to quiz you again. How did Get Story be born? How was it born in you? Well, you know, I used to suck at telling my story. You know, it, it comes from a lot of different places. I grew up, you know, a bit of a misfit kid. You know, uh, I was a nerd long before it was cool to be a nerd. Do you remember those days? And, right, we had no idea better days were coming. Uh, we just knew that life really sucked. And, and I was 
not only was I a nerd, but I was this weird kid that had, you know, grown up in Switzerland till the age of nine and then moved to Los Angeles, California. Imagine Swiss Lederhosen boy and surfer skater culture. And I was chubby and awkward and my little, you know, leather booties. I was a train wreck and I couldn't play sports to save my life. And so I just experienced at this really young age, this sense of being a fish out of water, being lost in translation. You know, it took me many years to realize how much that experience in, in many ways has defined the arc of the rest of my life. You know, and if we fast forward to sort of the beginning of my career, uh, I came of age at the birth of the, uh, the internet age. So I graduated from uni in the late 1990s. I was living in Boston at the time. I got involved as an entrepreneur, but specifically a social entrepreneur. So applying, you know, business principles to social change issues. Had a lot of very quick early success, you know, was working on digital divide issues, which is, you know, the very idea that technology will increasingly influence like the haves and the have nots, what career opportunities you have, what economic opportunities you have, what social connectiveness you have. And so we were working on digital divide issues back in the late 1990s of how urban inner city adults could get into high tech jobs. But the story everybody wanted to tell was the story of saving the inner city. You know, poor Leroy grew up, you know, his mom used to smoke crack, his dad's in and out of jail. But look at how technology is the silver bullet that will save the inner city. And that story just made me want to throw up in my mouth. Why? Why? Because it's, you know, we have these stories are condescending stories that are stories that are uh, like I'm fascinated with the issue of, of, of social of innovation, social innovation, business innovation. That's what our specialty is at Get Storied, you know, and, and how you use storytelling to bring something that's new and disruptive and world changing to life. And usually when you're working on something like, say, digital divide issue, it's about poverty, it's about race, you know, and ethnicity. The current story of how we talk about that is very condescending. It's patronizing. It actually perpetuates the very thing you're trying to change, which is a sense of equality, right? And so I saw in that instance, we had a lot of very quick success. You know, by the age of 23, I was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation and, you know, and had a lot of support for this work. And then by the age of 24, epic crash and burn startup failure. I want to get back to that. I want to ask you this question because this question's burning inside me. Ooh, let's, let's light a match. How did you define your success? How did I define my success then? Mm-hmm. And how do you define it now? I mean, look, you know, I, I'm not really one that's good at defining success at any time in my life, to be honest with you. Um, I'm telling you a story, and the story is back in late 90s, by a lot of external measures, we had a lot of very quick success. We had you know, um, it's very rare and unusual for a startup nonprofit less than a year old to get that type of funding from such um, leading iconic foundations. And we were incubated by a venture philanthropy firm. And, you know, and I was in Fast Company magazine. And we, we you know, we, we organized a whole digital uh, workforce alliance of basically training programs on the ground doing this work. And so we, a lot of things that were like very quick. But at the end of the day, You know, we were in the intermediary business. You know, we weren't in the direct service delivery. We weren't doing this on the ground. So then, as well as now, um, I have a hard time answering the question of success 
because it's not my story. You know, we work with Google, we work with NASA, we work with Deloitte, we work, work with Greenpeace. It's not my story. It's your story. You know, I may be a midwife for it. I may be an educator that's helping you to locate yourself in that story and, and, and tell a better story for the future you want to create. But I don't own those results. And I'm more interested, frankly, in a culture of inquiry than a culture of achievement. So, yeah, it's, it's a hard one. I, I, never, I never answer that question very well. When, about, you know, what are you most proud of? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you plenty of things that other people will go, ooh, wow, isn't that cool? But well, here, it, well, here's um, what I think. I don't, I don't really cling to it. Yeah. I think that a lot of us are looking for success in this money thing. You know, we're looking to be big and famous and successful. And the more customers yeah. we have and the more revenue that comes in, that's going to define success. But a lot of people that get that, and especially people that get that very early, realize that's not what they're looking for but yet we we go out there and strive to make that happen and and then you know some people never make it happen and some people make it happen but a lot of the people that actually make it happen kind of go that actually wasn't what I was striving for there's something else that I'm looking for what is that and that that's the journey you know that therein lies the journey we all take that sense of fulfillment and purpose and reason for being so I like to have that conversation inside business because we can yeah. get so caught up in the striving for the success inside the business. And I get caught up with it all the time in my business. And mm-hmm. I have to stop and say, look, why am I doing this? You know, who am I and why am I doing it? And this whole radio gig is not a paid thing. So I'm not looking for that financial success inside this. So that why am I doing it? I question every day because there's not the money behind it. it but it's an interesting question to ask yourself in anything you do. Why do you do what you do? What I try to pay attention to, Karen, is um, what is the tendermost part of my heart that is seeking voice or expression? And what's at the heart of this inquiry for me is how do any of us take what is invisible, what is intangible, what is unseen, yet we see something, we know something, we believe something, and how then do we take that thing that's invisible or intangible and give it form and shape um, so that others can receive the gift of what we see or what we have to offer? That's really what propels me. It's what's at the heart of anybody who's an innovator or a change agent at a deep core level. That's what we're trying to do. To your point about measuring success, you know, one of the challenges when you're not driven by financial success first and foremost, and you're working on something that's really big, something that is, um, you might not see all the fruits of your labor in the most immediate, direct, explicit manner. So from that place, you know, when you don't have those immediate feedback mechanisms, it becomes really easy to define oneself, to define one's success actually in the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this resistance. Oh, I'm working hard. I'm at the gym. I am pumping iron of effort. So that becomes our feedback mechanism. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm just sort of looking at, you know, social activists and entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. You know, the story of the struggle becomes their drive. Save the trees, save the planet, save the... At the same time, the story of the struggle doesn't allow the expansion of the solution. 
If your identity is so attached to the story of struggle, is there ever the possibility of reaching the promised land? Is there ever the possibility of a respite? Is there ever uh, the ability to um, to just be okay with what is yeah. and to celebrate the harvest, you know, to acknowledge the, the bounty? Um, you know, the Buddhists have a great proverb. Uh, I really love it. It's one of my favorite touchstones, which is, enough is still a feast. Yeah, it's about being happy in the moment, okay with the moment, acceptance of the moment. I was just listening this morning to someone online talking about the, the, the death of her partner and how everyone saw that as such a tragedy, but inside the tragedy so much growth came out of it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the story of the struggle of death, grief, all that sort of thing. But out of that came huge expansion, huge innovation. The struggle is the step one process, the asking, and then the acceptance is the allowing, and then life brings you the solutions, the desire fulfilled, the dream fulfilled. Okay, back to your story. So you were terrible at telling your story. Yeah. How did you get better? Well, so I felt, you know, I mean, it's, well, so ask me the question again. Well, you said before that you yep. felt that you were not good at telling your story because I really yeah. relate to this. You know, I had a whole lot of marketing people and brand you. When you work for yourself and you put yourself out, yes. you're your brand, you know, like like yep. it's, there's a lot of people that will relate to my story. So I work as a, you know, I started off my life as a naturopath, massage, then it went into healing, then it went into teaching. But I'm the, I'm the product, right? Now that yeah. is a personal growth journey on its own being the product that you're selling because oh my god your ego gets in the way of that but telling your story so that it doesn't look like you're telling everyone how fabulous you are and you know you're an egoic son of a bee and and you're telling your story in a way that's going to contribute to you know therein lies a skill that you help people with I mean, here, here's the thing, right? The act of having to tell our, so first of all, the, the hardest story to tell is always our own. And with that, it brings up every insecurity, every vulnerability, every self-doubt. You know, a lot of us who are professional service advisors, healers, consultants, coaches, we're really good at making the story about everybody but ourselves. Oh, no, 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 it's not about me. No, 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 I'm here to serve you. Don't worry about me. You know, you hear this in the psych, you know, in like the psych, psychotherapy sort of traditions and this, oh, I don't want any projection. No, let's, my story, but here's what you got to remember. If you have no story, I don't know how to be in relationship with you. You know, I need to know your story before I can trust you with mine. You know, th- this is a really big issue for so many of us where, Many of us are in careers and professions, well, first of all, that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago, right? So we're in careers and professions that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago, and then we're often building worlds or providing services uh, or trying to share something with people that we couldn't have conceived of 10 or 20 years ago. So this is the state that so many of us are in where the old stories of how the world worked and how we understood those things don't really hold true in the same way. And so many of us are now inventing the future or bringing forward, you know, you mentioned being a healer. There might be some deep esoteric body of work that used to be really close sacred knowledge. And now you're bringing that out into the world. How do we translate that, make that accessible? So our same issues as a CEO has with some business transformation initiative and how this new technology platform inside our company 
that's going to change the culture for how we do business and having more transparency and better understanding of what's happening and how we collaborate and communicate. And all, you know, that translation process, helping people to locate themselves in the new story is really the ultimate task of, of any leader or entrepreneur or change agent. You asked me another question of how did I get better at it? You know, honestly, it, uh, it's just by grabbing a tiger by the tail. So after that first chapter as a social entrepreneur, I hit the wall. I had a physical, emotional, mental, spiritual breakdown. You know, I was so sick that, you know, I could barely walk. I took a six-month-long sabbatical. I already was into a lot of different, different sort of things, but definitely turbocharged my own sort of spiritual path. I lived at a place called Kripalu um, in America. That's like the largest um, holistic health yoga center in the U.S. Um, cool. And a lot of seeds were planted there. But I remember um, coming out of that experience. And then eventually I sort of found my sea legs a little bit. I was now living in Washington, D.C. And after a little while, I, I hung out my shingle. I was like, all right, I'm going to get back in the game. And uh, I want to get into organizational change. I think that's the ticket. Right. Like because I, I, that's what had failed in my last startup were these organizational change issues, these systemic change issues. So this is what I was fascinated with. So I hung out my shell as an organizational change consultant. And the first six months in business, I brought in this much income. <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> Nada. Zilch. Didn't know what the heck to make of me. I'm here. I was at the you know 23 year old young blood talking about all of this you know transformation and innovation and organizational change in a place like Washington D.C. and it's like 2002. Didn't quite go so well. But oftentimes the big stories of our lives. This is something Robert Moss says, drawing from the Aborigines, and he says you know the big stories of our lives they stalk us. They follow us like a hunter stalks its prey. And so it's there all along, like following us. And so what happened for me, based on serendipity, a friend invites me to a meeting that is a community of organizational storytellers called Gold Fleece. Gold Fleece. Golden Fleece. Golden Fleece. yeah, you know, it's, it's a name off of uh, Jason and the Argonauts in Greek mythology, which basically they're on the journey for the Holy Grail. Rather fitting, right? Mm-hmm. So, so here I, I show up in this room full of this motley crew of organizational storytellers who start talking about this craft, this bubbling up young emerging field, which in 2002 was very early. But a, a guy from the World Bank uh, by the name of Steve Denning He'd been given the assignment of knowledge management and sort of leading that up at the World Bank, which was sort of a suicide mission when it was handed to him. But he found a way to bring it to life, and he realized the power of storytelling as a way to unlock knowledge in the digital age. So he very quickly became a best-selling author and poster boy for the organizational storytelling world. So he started throwing conferences at the Smithsonian, and this community emerged. Here I walk in, and most of these folks in the room are like in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s, and I'm the 23-year-old youngblood. So I just sat at their feet and I soaked it all in. And I also then it sort of interpreted it. I, I sort of I took it in through the lens of my generation and my work as a social entrepreneur. And in that within that community was Paul Costello, who was my first teacher in the world of storytelling, who is a, a seminary dropout, former social activist, 
trained in the tradition of, of narrative therapy, Michael White, who's actually from Australia, from Adelaide. And he taught me about living stories, about the ethic of narrative and about hermeneutics. And that sort of cracked the egg open for me. And then, you know, the last 15 years, it's been, it's been a humble path. Look, it's been a humble path, but it hasn't been boring, I would imagine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Look, the ethic, there was a few gems that you said just then, living stories. Yes. You know, we're all a walking, living story. There is nothing but story. Hollywood understands this so well, the power of story. And, you know, my humble path as a teacher healer came to that conclusion when I came across some spiritual teacher healer that just sat and told a whole lot of stories. And it hit me in the head that healing is really about a new story and and translating a message is about telling a story. It's not about do this, do that, step one, step two, step three, step... And I realized, having never been religious, that the Bible is actually a whole book of stories and the most, the bestseller on the planet, you know what I mean? So I'm thinking... yes. Success and story, you know, they're they're very much intertwined. Every every wisdom tradition mm. has been passed on through the storytelling tradition. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you. I'm going to come back to your yeah. story in a minute. I want to ask you about creatives. We talked about healers yes. and esoteric. You know, I'm just thinking of a lot of people that I deal with that are incredible creatives. They're music. They're singers, songwriters, artists, and they're not into their story. They're into their art. They're into their music. They're into their whatever they produce. You know what I'm saying? And mm. they, they're not really that good at even talking about themselves. They want their art to talk for itself. What do you say to these people who, are, who have produced, let's say, music? They've produced a song, mm. an album, and they want the world to hear it, but they're not proficient at you know, they want the music to speak for itself. Yeah. You know, in the past, Michael, that's been the paradigm in that the the music did speak for itself and the musician, I'm thinking about Prince who just left the planet recently, you know, has been very reclusive and we don't hear their stories. We hear their craft but we don't hear their stories. You know, the shortest distance between two people is a story. You know, Howard Rheingold has said, thanks to the internet, life is increasingly performance art. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges that we face with that is, okay, life, okay, we're all on stage. We're, we're all, all on the Truman stage. Show. We're yeah. all in the Truman Show. Yeah. And in, a, in an age of information overload and attention deficit, what we're looking for are those invisible lines of connection of who moves us. We don't always have the benefit of introducing ourselves to people through our art, especially now in an age where so much creative content, our expectation is we expect a freemium model. I expect a whole bunch of free version of your art. And if I really love it and you give me a really compelling value proposition, maybe, just maybe I must pay for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so... You know, this notion of what are all the different ways that you build the emotional connective tissue with your audience, with your community, with your tribe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you know, and for a lot of us, here's one of the, one of the challenges I think the artist, the creative change agent or entrepreneur faces at a very archetypal level. Okay. Which is uh, most of us, our identity is usually formed out of rebellion. Our identity, you know, this is classic adolescence. Like we start from the place of 
I am not. I am not that. I am not my parents. I am not my communities. Right? So we, we, we define ourselves in opposition. And that's what sets us off on the quest, you know, to go off on, a, on our epic, heroic, you know, journey out into the desert. Mm-hmm. And in a certain regard, that's the fire that we're forged in. But you see, that experience of I am not actually becomes the barrier to the return, to making it back home, right, to, to coming back to the world. You're hitting something very personal to me right on the head. So the story of the I am not is actually, it gets you out into the world to say, who are you and what's it all about, Alfie? But it actually inhibits you from coming back home. That is just so beautifully put. You know, at some stage, you have to let go of the I am not and embrace it to actually get back home. You know, that's every that's every adolescent, rebellious adolescent child's story. That was me. And um, that is my daughter right now, actually. Uh, how do people let go Here, of the I am not and come back home? How do they do that? Yeah. I mean, this, this is something I've been spending a lot of time looking at lately, which is the story of I am not is a story that's deeply rooted in our suffering. It's rooted in the, wait, this is it? <laughs> this is all we get? This that is was my experience. Right. This was my, you know, I mean, look, when, when, you know, when I was five years old, when you were five years old, you were the world's greatest storyteller. Right. Most of us were. Then what happens? I don't know what happened. We, we went to school. Oh, we went to school. Oh, my God. We went to school. Right. Oh. And in school, we were told what the right stories were. Yeah. Right. So for me, like that experience was like getting a bunch of hand me down clothes that don't fit because <laughs> I would go home. My dad's a mad scientist and inventor. My mom's a teacher, artist, and toy designer. So imagine we've got Doc Brown from Back to the Future. That's my dad. And my mom's like Mary Poppins. And I don't know if, you know, every day of my day it's going to be a, a science experiment or an art project. And then I'd go to school. This is it? Right? So, so that experience of, um, you know, and just like, and we all have like pilot on each of our own personal version of suffering, of pain, of the disappointments, of the way we're told how the world works and then how our experience lines up to this. So that is actually what often propels us on the quest. Now, some of us have had a really blessed childhood or early life and we're taught a certain set of values or outlook and we're like, oh my gosh, this is my responsibility. I must be a steward of this teaching and a wisdom. So sometimes it comes that way too. But for so many of us, we're rooted in that experience of rejection, that experience of, of us rejecting the world because we in some way feel rejected. So we have to get in touch with that because while it's the grist for the mill that sets us off on the quest, it's what even, you know, in a heroic journey will get you to the top of the mountain. Many of us, you know, have had that moment you know, of illumination, truth descended, of finding that philosopher's stone. Oh, I've got this breakthrough. Now I'm ready to bring this back to the tribe, to the world. And well, the hero's journey doesn't end at the top of the mountain. There's a whole second half to that story, which gets overlooked. It's the long walk home. It's how we make our way back down the mountain into the valley of the river flows. And we come sprinting back to the village. We're like, expecting a hero's welcome return and but wait there's nobody here to greet me where's the ticker tape parade wait you, and, and then you finally you, you know you, you track some people down in the village and 
didn't even notice you were gone. Or if they did, they're like, well, where the hell have you been? And then you're like, oh, but I was just at the mountaintop. I've got this amazing thing. Wait till I tell you about this technology and what can do. Oh, well, listen to you and your fancy buzzwords. <laughs> right? And then like our, you know, our exaltation, our ode to life, it's like, mm-hmm. and we experience that same moment of rejection all over again. And we usually come back, right, with our message. Oh, I've got the gospel. I've got this truth. I've got this breakthrough to save humanity. It can make such a contribution. But we usually then tell the story inadvertently that says, don't take this the wrong way or anything, but you're all wrong. (laughs) Sorry, I'm right. I'm right. And, you know, blessed. I've come back from the mountaintop with the tablets. I'm going to set us straight. Don't worry. We'll take care of everything now. Oh, no, no, no. But I don't mean you've, you know, I didn't mean to take this personally. No, no, no. You're not wrong, bad, or stupid. No, 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 no. But the old way of doing things is pretty screwed up. I'm like, come on. Yeah. So what, so what you're saying is when you, when you reach your epiphany, how do you communicate that with somebody without making them wrong? By validating who they are, but showing them a new way of being. I mean, really, wow, that's, yeah. I remember, you know, about 25 years ago, I discovered Law of Attraction, read all these books, and I used to tell everyone how they were a victim. You're a victim, you're a victim. You know, (laughs) they did not like that at all. (laughs) That that didn't make you many friends, did it? (laughs) (laughs) They did not. People used to tell me to shut up a lot. shut up with your spiritual crap you know like yeah how do you translate what you know you look the only way I know how to translate what I know is to live it Mm. uh, personally because in my own living on of it I have my story and I can tell people you know this is how I experienced it this is what I felt this is what I did this is what I thought Uh, to translate how to teach someone to think I have to express how I've thought and that was for me you know that was a journey yeah. so building on that and this is something I've, I've really I just finished a 12-week teaching tour I've been looking at this closely and one of the things that that I think is at the heart of what you're speaking to is part of this is learning and being able to witness ourselves in our own suffering and to be able to then let go of the suffering. But if we can't witness ourselves in our own suffering, then we're going to have a gosh darn hard time to witness anybody else in their suffering. And I find that's the thing we tend to skip over. Well, it's, it's the bypass that happens again and again with change agents and entrepreneurs and healers and so on. You're saying something so important right now, and I just want to reiterate it. Yeah. You know, it's not only the witnessing, because, you know, my personal life is just giving me the tools for what we're talking about, as always, synchronicity. Yeah. It's not only the witnessing your own suffering, but detaching from it too. Like, oh, I'm just suffering over my suffering. Like, I'm in my suffering. But knowing that, you know, the moment I'm suffering, witnessing it and detaching from it, it's not, because what we do in our suffering is we're in the now and we're in the moment and we think it's going to last forever. You know, the the depression, the tears, the pain is not tomorrow or the next moment. And when you witness it and accept it for what it is, it very quickly leaves and you can see 
You can see the desire birthed from the suffering. You can see the new idea that has been born yeah. within the suffering and the reaching for that. And and that's what you do for another as a healer or an entrepreneur. You see their suffering, but you're not attached to it. You're not identified with it. You've been there. You can be empathic. You can say, that feels shit. I know how that feels. I was there yesterday. But you're not identifying with it being who they are because you see the, the innovation born from it and you can see where they're going and, and you can yeah. lock on to that. Whether That's it be, exactly right. Whether it yeah. be the health in the body or the money in the yeah. bank account or the lover or the, or the yes. enlightenment, you know, or the love yes. from within, yeah. Well, you know, we all teach what we need to learn most. Mm-hmm. What is it that you need to learn most? How to honor the wisdom of my heart and that um, for me, I'd rather be judged and remembered for the presence of my being than the doing of my mind. Trouble inside, I am not like all the other girls that you saw last night. Loudon Wainwright said before, you can save my life if you give me to Cara and Accentuating the Positive here on the home of Conscious Music, Soul Traveller Radio. That song was by Sally Seltman, A Heart That's Pounding. My guest today is Michael Margolis. He helps people get storied. He helps you find your story so that you can be the change maker, innovator, disruptor, difference maker. You know you are. Here's more of our fascinating conversation. I'd rather be remembered for the presence of my being than the doing of my mind. You know, something that I witnessed in you, which I witness in myself, is that juxtaposition between the mind and the heart, the mind that wants to analyze, think, invent, criticize, pinpoint, you know, that delicious mind. It's such a seductive tool, the mind. And the heart that just wants to be and accept and love in the moment. How do you find you juggle those two strong elements? The journey for me is is one about um, learning how to witness myself more deeply. And in that process, being able to witness others more deeply. You know, sharing more of my personal story. I mean, I'm a story guy. And I still, oh, God, I don't want to share my story. Everybody wants to hear that. You know, even in the last couple of months, there's a lot more that I share. And it's not from a place of ego identification in it. It's from that place of, and this is the question we all have to ask ourselves. Am I sharing this story for my own ego validation? Or am I sharing this story in service to my audience as an educator so that they're able to relate more easily, that they're able to understand the underlying motivations of where I'm coming from, including my biases, including my own frailty, my own lacks, you know, my own blind spots, right? Like we, we all have internal biases. And when you can be more transparent about your motivations of where you're coming from, that's a huge part of creating a receptive field. And then, you know, the place that I think I'm still sitting in right now is uh, like I, I went nomad almost a year ago. So I'm, I'm a global nomad. Now I live out of two small little bags. 
you know, that fit on carry on, you know, uh, Karen, you, you know, you can, you can vouch for this. You've seen me in my, in my two bags. Right. And I, I live and teach around the world. And there's so much to that journey that, you know, we could, we could talk for hours on, but the, the, there's a piece to it, which is I'm more into, and I'm designed to serve the moment, just personality wise. I'm really built to serve the moment. And I'm more about serving that moment than wanting to capture or produce an artifact of that moment. Because people are always like, oh, well, gosh, are you blogging a lot? Are you doing lots of content about this? And no. But, 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 but don't, should you? Well, I know it'd be good for show business and good people. But you know what? Here's, I think, the crux of the matter for a lot of us. You know how I talked about taking what's invisible, what's unseen, what's ephemeral? There are aspects of those areas of our life. Some of it is sacred knowledge. Some of it is actually not meant to be shared. Or it's meant to be shared with only our truest intimates. So the idea that everything is to be shared is is a false sort of pendulum swing. Um, and of course, a lot of us then see oversharing happening through social media. We're like, oh my God, I so don't want to be that wanker. Oh my God, please don't let me ever sound like her. And then we pull back and we don't share anything at all. And so, you know, to me, there's a middle path to this, right? And that's, that's the journey of how we story ourselves into being and how we discover the invisible lines of connection that help shape and bring to life the, ultimately the meaning of our life. Remember I mentioned that thing about the feast, mm-hmm. right? So one of my challenges in life is that I sit at the all-you-can-eat buffet of life. My life is such a feast of experiences, of remarkable people and organizations that I work with. And yet the paradox is I've ha- I continue to have to work really hard despite my life being a feast that I don't feel nourished. So what is it about that interface between the feast and feeling truly nourished? And part of my conclusion around that, it's, you know, this is the same thing that happens when you go to the all-you-can-eat buffet and you're like, oh, my God, all right, I'm going to have a plate full of the, of the shrimp cocktail and then, wow, check out these chicken wings. Oh, wow, and there's a pot roast. And, oh, wow, you guys, you guys have edamame. Oh, wow, and I can get my own custom stir fry. And it's like, you know, it's like plate after plate all stacked up. And, and it sounded great at the time, much less once you get to the dessert buffet and you try, oh, but now there's 25 different things. I got to taste every single one. Oh, I wonder what that one's like. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, you're sitting there going, oh, oh, what was I thinking? Oh. I mean, I think that's a parable for what a lot of us are going through right now in this time and age where you can so much more than ever be anything you want to be, that you can create or build a world unlike any time before, that you can take an idea and bring it to life. And then all the incoming streams of, of information and ideas that we're, that we're processing. And no wonder so many of us don't know which way is up or down or left or right, much less feeling nourished. So that's, that, that's, very, that's been that's meditation very, lately. There's a very, very good reason for not feeling nourished. And, and it's perfect and exactly as it should be. Just like, to use your analogy, 
when we eat and we're as full, it's like we can eat as much as we can stuff in our gob, but it's not going to satisfy us for the rest of our life because at some point, again, we'll be hungry. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the balance of life because I mm-hmm. think when the hunger stops, life stops. You know, when you're full, when you've had enough of life, when, the, when you feel completely nourished, there's no more to, you know, there's no more desire in you. There's no more movement forward. I don't think life is about sitting back on the couch feeling completely satisfied with what is. I think that that hunger and that reaching for that more nourishment keeps us moving forward. And I think, you know, desire is always born, the next desire, the next desire. Like what next? What next? What next? Who, who can I meet next? What story can I get out of someone next? What interview can I do next? next client i don't think that's mutually exclusive from nourishment you don't think it's mutually exclusive from nourishment no one of my mantras is or or something i've sat with before is i have everything that i need and i want more yeah and and that's okay yeah but the i have everything i need is feeling nourished it doesn't mean that i'm not going to still have desire for other things yeah but I, i think this issue of nourishment actually is to me, the crux of a spiritual practice, mm-hmm. it's the crux of coming back to self and how easy it is for myself and, and many of us to live a life reacting and increasingly reacting to an infinite number of demands or requests for our attention versus how much time we're spending creating based on you know our dharma, based on our calling, based on what, what are we really seeking to bring forward Versus all the, the responsibilities or obligations that we think, whether they're true or not, you know, of all the places that we give our energy away. So that's something that's very real and present for me even still. And it's delicious. And it's like chocolate. <laughs> Did somebody say chocolate? Chocolate? Ooh. Chocolate? chocolate? Do you want some chocolate? Yeah, give me some chocolate. <laughs> Thank you. Here you go. All right, I'll have it for you. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Look, hmm. we've, we've yeah. nutted out a few things today. So your journey as a nomad and being, yeah. you know, homeless. You, you said to me, you know, while you were staying with me, that you wanted to feel at home wherever you are. And that was a part of being, you know, nomadic. Do you feel like you want to still continue that? Have you, have you reach that point of feeling at home wherever you are or do you still crave some sort of home how's it going being a nomad was the dream deferred for 20 years yeah as someone who teaches transformational storytelling i mean the archetype of the traveling bard was quite appropriate or you know as someone who's been on a you know spiritual path for many years you know the sort of a modern sannyasi you know like the a certain aspect of renunciating of emptying the cup of letting go of a lot of things that to live a simpler life and in a way living off of the generosity and friendship of those you meet on the road has been a really phenomenal platform for growth for me i'm loving it um, i'm very happy in it and yet at the same time too i'll tell you i couldn't have done it anytime sooner yeah. so for 20 years i've wanted to do this if i tried it a year earlier or five years earlier i feel like it would have chewed me up and spat me out Mm -hmm. 
And there were just a convergence of forces, you know, in terms of my own spiritual practice, my own professional development, a bunch of different things converging so that no matter where I am in the world, I'm able to hold my center and I know how to create a sense of home. So it's actually been one of the easiest years of my life. Um, you know, and yeah, there's logistics of time zones and travel stuff in that, but you know, it's not like I'm, I'm not living like a backpacker sleeping on people's couches. I'm a professional and, you know, and I have clients all around the world and I've got a team that, that I work with and, you know, and I stay in Airbnbs and in hotels, you know, sometimes stay with friends in a spare bedroom, but, um, yeah. And, and look, interestingly enough, being a nomad or, or being location independent is, one of the sort of collective fantasies of our current age and generation. Most people I talk to, they're like, oh my God, I so want to do that. Or, oh yeah, I remember doing that when I was this old. God, I can't wait to do it again. There's something about that that is very emblematic of this internet age and of this interconnected sort of globe and culture that's emerging. And more and more of us are choosing to go down this path and it's easier than ever before. And I think part of it is back to that notion of a long walk home, you know, which I think is is a timeless journey for all of us. And the question remains, what is the long walk home for so many of us who do not have a deep attachment to a culture or place of origin? For so many of us who don't know the stories of our great, great grandparents, for so many of us who have not taken on the profession of our my father and grandfather or your mother and grandmother, or necessarily um, wed to the faith in its exact form of what I was born into, right? Or for, for some, it might be sexuality or gender. I mean, there's so many places of identity that are up for grabs. And so that notion of being a nomadic migratory species that is forever adapting and changing to our surrounding environment to find that place of home, I, I think is an inquiry that, uh, that so many of us are on. And what a blessed time to, to be exploring that together. You know, I think the long walk home is the journey called life, actually. From my perspective, I think we're, we come from a place which I call home into this physical environment we forget where we come from. We get caught up in the story of what it is to be physical. We go through the hero's journey, the top of the mountain down, rejection, all that, and then we're looking for that place called home. And that place called home for me is unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, infinite possibility. It's a place of, it's a place of unimaginable beauty and harmony and bliss that some of us will never know on this physical journey. And so many have described when they've had near-death experiences or spiritual experiences or life experiences like giving birth or death or where they have touched that place called home. And, uh, yeah, I call my sessions reminders from home because I think that that place called home is not a physical place on earth but a, a place in our heart. That uh, I think that's a very physical place. The place in our heart or it's that intangible that we spoke about, you know. Yeah, but it's here. It's an embodiment. I mean, see, I think the I think the journey of life is about the embodiment of spirit. It's it's here. And the yeah, it's we don't need to go anywhere. I mean, look, to me, the paradox of the long walk home is, you know, so, you know, 
Well, yeah. So the first, you know, the, the uh, I've been doing this work on story with storytelling for almost 15 years. Yeah. And the first, um, you know, now we're called Get Storied. Uh, but the first name of, of my business and, and, and organization around this was called Thirsty Fish. And it comes from a quote by Kabir, right? The great Sufi mystic who said, I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. Yeah. Everything we're looking for is it's right here in front of us. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. The long walk home is the journey back to self. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a humble path. It's this reconciliation of like Dharma and karma. Right. Like the thing that's like flowing through us. That's this again, that's the big story that's stalking us like a hunter stalks its prey. That's our dharma. No matter. See, life is all about choices. All about the choices. And yet, well, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Life is all about the choices. Right. So choices lead to consequences. And you could say consequences is is karma. Right. It's the consequences of one's choices that can, you know, that, that generate basically cause and effect. So. We make choices, it has effects, but no matter what choices we make, our essential self, our dharma shows up despite those circumstances. Yeah. Right? So choices are everything. But even if you make the wrong choice, your true self is still going to show up and it's going to use that choice, whether it was the right choice or the wrong choice, which is, is often, you know, those labels are often where we get stuck in our stories. But despite those that becomes the, the grist for the mill, the character building experiences that make us and break us. And, and that's the continued unfolding of, of life expressed in its you know, unique individuated form through each of us and, and the gifts that, that each of us you know, bring to bear. Look, that's, that was another gem in this conversation that you caught up with the decisions, the right choice, you know, where to live who to be with, what to do with my life, it doesn't really matter because there's only one outcome and that is to return back to self in whatever choice yeah. you make. So. But it does matter. Here's the thing. It's the, the, your choices are the most important thing. Choose wisely who you travel with. Pick your battles. See, the choice, it's like, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book. What choice you make actually will have a huge effect on what plate of food you're going to be served Right on on yeah, what but those, kind of those choices are a choice of thought. They're a choice of thinking uh, because you know law of attraction comes into play when you're angry. Angry is an American word. You know, grumpy and pissed off with everything and resistant about everything's wrong. You're going to be served up a different you know more stuff to be pissed off about than if you're if you're happy. Sometimes not sometimes all the time. If you're happy and content. You know, really? You, no, I, I want to challenge that because yeah. have you like? I mean, come on! Like, have you not ever met somebody who's an asshole and yet good things happen to them? Yeah, but they're not an asshole all the time. It's a dom. You know, the thing about vibration—it's your dominant vibration that is attracting the majority of your experience. And you know what someone well, deems I, as I a good thing that. or a bad thing is yeah. is perspective. Really, I mean, it really is perspective. Yeah. So. Well, I, I, I can definitely vibe with the second half. Um, you know, here's the thing. You could be with someone that you love. You could be an angry, grumpy person, and that person who you adore thinks, oh, you're too hard, I'm going to leave you. But that might be a good thing because that person finds another mate and you might stop being grumpy. You might sort of look at yourself and say, you know what, this person left me. I'm, I need to change me because somebody I love left and so therefore maybe I could be a better person, you know, Good and bad is very 
perspective driven. Well, that goes to the heart of, of the power of transformational storytelling, the ability to retell a past experience through a new perspective, mm-hmm. right? That, that actually is where transformation occurs. So yeah. that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I just, I, I find, I, uh, yeah, the law of attraction to me, I find can become a bit of a platitude and, and, and oversimplistic. And that the reality, like in my experience, back to your second point, the universe is value neutral. So from that value neutral perspective, um, shit happens, <laughs> Like terrible shit happens to good people. Good things happen to bad people. That said, are there ways in which our dharma, our karma can, you know, are there ways we can get in the flow and, and get into a groove and, you know, and, and other consequences to our choices and all those things? Absolutely. Look, I guess I'd sum it up with, you know, and this is an important piece from a storytelling perspective. We have to recognize that all stories are about the creative and destructive force of life, about expansion and contraction. And at the end of the day, the house always wins. And who is the house to you? Who's the house? Like, who the is, house always wins. But who's the house in, your, in, your, in that analogy? What do you think? The house always wins. Well, the house could be God, the universe, your inner being, yeah. inner self, higher self. I don't know. Well, well, that's the house. Life. Life. We're still here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The house always like, wins, which is an important. The house always wins. But that's a really important perspective to give to someone who's fighting the good battle, like the environment, for instance. I think number yeah. one problem we face on our planet right now, huge amounts of pollutions are going into the atmosphere in every second so in saying that doesn't really matter what happens the house always wins well and and look so let's let's talk about that specific issue example all right planets versus humans planets always win yeah right the earth is going to be just fine the earth will kick us off if it doesn't like what we're doing it's starting to she'll you know the earth being a being she'll just say get off me you're polluting me too much. You don't like those you know, new age concepts, I don't. No, but how, no. But that's how I think that. Of no, but look, I think the earth, um, we're still like we're a gnat on the consciousness of the earth. Now, you know, how are we going to do as a species? We, we might take some licks, but, you know, we forget, you know, we as a species, you know, we survived an ice age. I mean, we've gone through... Again, expansions and contractions and, you know, unfolding or or the idea that somehow consciousness is going to end if our human species ends. I mean, all of these things I find it's really easy to give our power away to stories outside of our sphere of influence versus coming back to like, what's mine to do? Um, And that's not, again, to ignore that, yeah, these are pretty – we're at a real turning in history. This is a real – these are inflection point times but bring it one of the challenges where people get lost in their stories, they get lost in abstraction is people take on these big amorphous, big stories. And in the moment you do that, in the moment that you have somebody else to blame as a villain within that story, you're giving your power away that that person has to change in order for this story to be resolved instead of what do I need to heal within myself and understanding 
what suffering and pain I've gone through make this issue or topic matter to me. And by resolving more of that, it's going to allow me to better serve others on a similar path. Well, darling, well, that just cannot be spread enough because I just come across so many people that are so caught up in the story of saving humanity and the planet. And, and you know, what I'm thinking is how do you translate that very esoteric, you know, the house always wins to business when you're talking business and money and people that don't talk about spirituality at all or consciousness or, you know, well, any of that stuff. Um, they're either polluting the planet or trying to save it, but they're in that game you know and how do you yeah. how do you I don't think that? I don't I don't think people are in that in that binary I think people are dealing with a huge number of paradoxes and contradictions so I know you know I work with a lot of executives in really large companies yeah and what they're trying to reconcile is the following the modern corporate enterprise is built on the principle of risk management right the very formation the first corporate charter right was an insurance policy for managing risk for like the Dutch East Indies company, right? It was a vehicle for transfer of risk. That's the gift. That's the magic, the mojo of the modern enterprise is managing risk. But now we're in an age where business is being demanded. It needs to humanize. Yeah. It needs to be more transparent. It needs to be more relational. Yeah. It needs to be more adaptive. It needs to deal with uncertainty. So those are tectonic plates colliding. Yeah. And so there's a lot of leaders inside big organizations that are trying to reconcile that paradox. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a black and white kind of thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I hold compassion towards anybody who is um, trying to trying to resolve. You know, we all have a paradox we're trying to resolve. But but the one of our times right now between. You know, a lot of the ways that we've been taught to think and operate and do business versus the new ones. Your question, you know, how do you teach this other way of doing it? We help people to shift their stories, the actual construction of the story away from you're wrong and I'm right into a story that is about a possibility, about opportunity, about curiosity. And then you talk about the conflict or the creative tension, the challenge that comes with it. Um, we have a whole bunch of methodologies in our in our programs um, where we teach this of, of the actual architecture for how to tell a story. Um, and there's great brain science that supports this, you know, because the, the moment you confront people with a problem, what, what happens neurobiologically is cortisol starts flowing through the body, which is, you know, fight or flight stress hormone. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, when um, a story has a happy ending or the payoff, that's oxytocin which is the belonging molecule. It's that sense of connection and cohesion. Mm-hmm. And there's a way a lot of our business stories, like problem solution, they lead with cortisol, and then they try to get to oxytocin as the big payoff. But at a time when we're attention deficit, information overload, we're so overwhelmed, a cortisol fight-or-flight story, we exit right out of We don't have time for it. We don't pay attention to it. You've yeah, yeah. lost before you came out Absolutely. of the gate. Absolutely. And this is what charities are facing when they put, you know, starving children on television. And yes. then they ask you for money and show you what your money does. I mean, that's their, their story. You know, everyone is so numbed to looking at starving that they just don't want to look at it anymore. Look, you know what? We've gone way over time and we could talk all day, I'm sure. There's so much to nut out on this. There's so many great points that you've brought up. Uh, what would you like to leave people with? Some gem, some pearl of wisdom they can take home with them. 
No story can conquer the mystery. We can try. <laughs> we can have a have good go at it. <laughs> you know, just um, be kind to yourselves on this path and get in touch with the tendermost part of your heart. What is that thing that's invisible and unseen, ephemeral or intangible that you see, that you care or believe in, that you wish others could see and believe like you do? And from that place of the more you can share your heart around that, um, the more you can bottle the magic so that others can drink from the well, so that your gift can be received Know that whatever obstacle you're coming up against in your story, that obstacle actually is yourself. And so look back at yourself and what is your own internal state? In what ways are you defining your story in the struggle, in opposition? And if you don't like the story you're in, tell a new story. Try one on for size. Yeah. Tell a new story. and if, um, you know, if anybody wants to explore this material more, go to getstoried.com forward slash red pill. Red pill. Take the red pill. You will never look at yourself or storytelling the same. That will introduce us, introduce you to our, um, our global learning platform at Get Storied. It's a free storytelling mini course. Uh, we have a couple other programs, including how to write your professional bio or LinkedIn profile using storytelling principles in a way you can attract more of the right opportunities. And then we also have another program, Storytelling for Innovation, um, and how you can use that to present any product, service, project, initiative, fundraising, investor pitch, all of that. Um, so those are some of the things and, and lots of other great resources at GetStoried.com. You can also find me on Twitter, at GetStoried where uh, I I dish out a lot of this story philosophy on a daily basis. Yeah, reach out to me on through all the different social channels. Would welcome uh, being your friend and uh, and learning more about your story. Michael Margolis, it's been such a joy, such a joy to nut it out with you today. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and blessings to you. Oh, thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to another hour of Accentuate the Positive here on Soul Traveller Radio. Remember to support positive media. Go to Soul Traveller Radio on Facebook and show us your love. And also Accentuate the Positive Radio with Karen Swain on Facebook and hit that like button. Remember to download the mobile app of Soul Traveller Radio. You have the home of conscious music in the palm of your hand. Support conscious and positive media. It's changing our world. If you'd like to find out more about me, go to my website, karenswain.com, and have a bit of a explore. There's so much to see on the website. You can also book a reading with me there. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time. Bye for now.